we're talking now about Plato's apology. Plato, of course, was a student of Socrates. And in this text, we see Socrates on trial for his life, defending himself against various charges, uh, that he has corrupted the young men of Athens and that he has rejected the gods, that he is, in fact, an atheist. To talk about this um, seminal text uh, in Western philosophy and in Western literature, I'm joined by Jeremy Bell and Timothy Smart. Uh, Socrates is regarded, uh, and he talks about, Plato talks about this um, through Socrates in this text, as the wisest man uh, in the ancient world. Uh, let's talk about why he uh, is deemed wise. In what does his wisdom consist? I think the obvious place to start is what he says about himself. Or perhaps I should say what he reports as having been said about himself in the Apology. He claims famously that a friend of his, or an acquaintance of his, went to the Delphic Oracle and asked whether there was anyone wiser than Socrates. Clearly this acquaintance was very impressed with Socrates. And the Oracle responded that no one was wiser. Now Socrates himself didn't at first believe that, or so he says. And in fact, his career of questioning, his career of having conversations with people in Athens about the most interesting topics was prompted, again, so he says, by this oracle because he wished initially to prove that the oracle was mistaken. There must surely be plenty of people wiser than me. And having had a number of these conversations with people normally deemed wise, he decided they don't know what they're talking about. They're not wise at all. And eventually, he concluded, this is why I'm wise. I know that I know nothing, whereas all these other people imagine that they know something. That makes me, in that one respect, wiser than anyone else. That's his claim. And, uh, sorry, you go ahead, Tim. Oh, no, please. Oh, well, I was just going to say, and then an implication of that is that what drives Socrates is just this incessant questioning. Mm. So what, like, the dialogues run on this, like, sceptical questioning that Socrates... Uh, seems to be his method, uh, and um, yeah, a lot of that's had a huge impact on the, the course of philosophy. Mm. And um, this claim that he's the wisest man, notwithstanding that he sees his wisdom as consisting in his awareness that he knows nothing, is this part of the reason why he's uh, hated by um, many of the leading figures in Athens? Well, he shows other people up for not knowing what they're on about. Mm. People who had prided themselves on their wisdom. Poets I mean, that's and Exactly, orators. poets. Well, he distinguishes three classes. Poets, oh, I hope I'll get this right. Poets, statesmen, mm. or politicians. Politicians. And um, craftsmen. He said mm. that he specifically approached people in those three categories. Mm. Um, interestingly, the people for whom he has the kindest words there are the craftsmen. Mm. Well, maybe that's not quite right, but certainly he says the craftsmen did indeed possess knowledge of a kind, but mm. technical knowledge. Whereas the poets didn't things. know what they were talking about. No, indeed. Yes. <laughs> well, and it's funny, I mean, the poets too, he seems to suggest, had a kind of unconscious wisdom, rather mm. like oracles, actually. Yes, um, that's right. But um, Which comes yes. up in other dialogues. Indeed, uh, yes. Yeah, and, um, and what about the politicians? Why, why are they... Uh, 
Why don't they know what they're talking about? And why is that important? Well, where to start? I mean, they claim to know what is just, mm. crucial thing. They claim to know what is best for a city. And I suppose, especially important for the apology, um, how best to educate the youth. Yeah. Um, Socrates accuses, and Socrates himself agree on this, the enormous importance of educating the youth. Yeah. Um, and yes, Socrates shows that, look, you have to know yourself what you're about to teach these people mm. before you actually teach them, and it turns out you don't. Mm. Um, and yes, no one likes being shown up as, not just as not knowing things, but as having claimed to know things and then actually not knowing things. Yeah. So there's a resentment. Yeah, absolutely. Towards Socrates. These the word envy also comes up, though. Yeah. It's not spelled out why there should be envy here, but Socrates says, people envy me. Mm. And I think that should prompt us to ask, well, okay, what are they envying in Socrates? Um, Is it his popularity with the young? It might be partly that, yes. Mm. And there's, a, there's sort of like a revisionary intent with a lot of Socrates' with the, with the dialogues, or certainly as he's presented mm. in... Plato, so though he claims not to know anything, he's um, very critical of received wisdom. Yeah. So it's, it's often the case that the dialogues don't end with like, uh, okay, well now we know this particular bit of received wisdom that we thought we know, now we just have like a solid justification for it. It's often the case that one of the upshots of the dialogues is meant to be that uh, there, there are massive parts of the culture at the time that Socrates said it would be better off if we got rid of that. Mm. Um, and then there are a lot of... Um, that, that led to a lot of um, yeah, people being so uncomfortable seems to be with his recommendations. The, the system. Yeah, yeah. Threatening the whole system. Right, yeah. yeah. He's on charge, uh, I mean, he's, he's on trial for his life. Um, why is he, he, he strikes me as very cavalier and rather indifferent to the possibility that, he's, that he could die if he doesn't get this right. Uh, why do you think, or am I right in that? And is he, um, if so, <coughs> Why is he so um, cavalier about that fact that he might die? Yeah. Well, I think, I think it's... Oh, sorry. No, no, oh, no, no you, you go. Um, yeah, I was going to say, it's even, it even seems the case that he would prefer to die. Than I was going to say much the same thing. Some yes. other options, because at some point it's like, you could, take this other, you could take this deal or you could die. And the deal doesn't seem that bad. It's like be exiled or something mm. like that. And he would like, I would prefer to die. So he's not just cavalier about that possibility, but he actually thinks that like, that'd be preferable to some other arrangements. He actually says, I think, doesn't he, if, if, if I'm exiled, the same thing will just happen wherever I go. Mm. Yep. Uh, I'll upset people in your position, yeah. young people will follow me, and then they'll upset the people in your position, and I'll end up in the same position. Mm -hmm. um, yep. So exile isn't, isn't um, a solution, mm -hmm. uh, it just defers. <laughs> right, which is... Yeah, I mean, a lot of people could be like, oh, maybe the same wouldn't happen if I was mm. exiled or there'd be certain goods that I could enjoy while I'm exiled. <laughs> so he seems to certainly have, like, there are some positive properties of being dead or being executed mm. that he believes in and that he doesn't mind, all things considered. He has a little reverie almost about the possibility of uh, dying and going to a place where he can converse with all these people through history. Mm -hmm. um, then that bit's very tricky because mm. a lot of those people in history he has been critical of. Yeah. Or like, you know... Homer, I think like he mentions. Yeah, <laughs> or they're, they're people from the um, tradition which he is pretty sceptical mm. of. So it's not entirely clear how you're meant to take those mm. remarks, whether he's being straightforward there. Or ironic, talking, do you think? Yeah, mm. being, I, I could 
go and enjoy the company of these gods when in, in other or these heroes when in other dialogues he's been pretty skeptical mm. of the reality of stories about those heroes and yeah. gods. Well, also, it's clear from what he said throughout this. Um, I don't know if we should call it a dialogue, but throughout There's this not much dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's clear from what he said throughout that if he were to go to Hades and converse with all of these people and gods, it would be in the same manner as with people. In other words, he would be saying, well, what do you think about this? Yeah. Why do you think that? And can't you see that there's a contradiction there and so <laughs> forth? So, yes, he would just can imagine him. Yes. Oh, Apollo, place. you think you know what's going on, do you? Well, actually, I'm not so sure, yes. <laughs> Which is not exactly pious. Well, let's talk about that. He's, he, I mean, he's accused of being impious, mm. of, um, in fact, of being an atheist, of rejecting the gods. Uh, but he says, uh, actually, that he's inspired by a god. He's more or less told by God to do what he's doing. Um, why did they bring this charge of atheism against <coughs> him and why was that important, do you think? I think it's very important, first of all, that the formal charge was not precisely of atheism. Mm. Um, he was accused of bringing in new gods, right. which of course is not atheism. Mm. Um, and at the same time of disbelieving in the gods of the city. Yeah. And in particular, of course, he was accused of bringing in the new god, god isn't even the right word, his mm. daimon, mm. his demon. Yeah. Um, we can talk about, we should talk about that in a moment. Yeah. But um, in the one little stretch of dialogue um, in the Apology, where he talks to Miletus, one mm. of his accusers, Miletus actually says, no, I think you are a disbeliever in gods altogether, mm. in contradiction to the formal charge. Yes. And interestingly, Socrates doesn't precisely deny that. All he says is, again, on the model of so many of the other dialogues, Miletus, you're contradicting yourself. Mm. You say in the formal charge that I believe in these new gods, and now you say I don't believe in gods at all. Mm. As opposed to following that up with, and by the way, yes, I do believe in gods, Let's talk about the daemon then. By all means. Yeah, what, what, is, what is all that about? I mean, this is the thing that tells him what to do, isn't it? Not exactly. It tells him what not to do. Okay. Can you ex explore that? He says that periodically throughout his life he's been visited by this demon, um, which has never actually told him to do something talk to this person, mm. say this, or anything like that. It's always simply prevented him from doing something he was about to do. So it's a check on his... Exactly, yeah. yes. Um, and, and this is true, judging by the other uh, dialogues where the demon gets mentioned in the Phaedrus. Mm. Um, Socrates is actually about to abandon the conversation. Um, and then he says, ah, just as I was about to do that, my demon stopped me. Um, is it his conscience? Is it, is it a voice? How, do we how are we to understand this? Well, uh, I've been talking a bit, maybe, but what are your thoughts about how we are to understand Yeah, I mean, I think we understand it. There's a lot in the dialogues. One, one of the, the layers which makes it so rich is there's a lot of irony in the dialogue. So mm. there's a lot of um, room for textual analysis and room for, like, uh, in any particular remark, like, what is at stake for Socrates mm. in saying this? Who is his audience? Uh, is he being sincere? Like, is he genuinely asserting this or is he doing something else? Um, but whenever, and so that, that makes the dialogues very, um, you know, really interesting to, to read and talk about how you understand them. But from my, my uh, interpretation, whenever he talks about the divine sign or the daemon, it's always like, it seems straightforward. Mm. It seems like you're meant to believe it and he's, he's just sort of reporting something which is 
uh, happened, and also something which isn't meant to be entirely controversial, like he's just reporting uh, some kind of fact. Mm. Um, so I think on on the the surface we should take it as uh, straightforward. Yeah. Then exactly what it is, like whether it could be like given a reductive psychological explanation, or whether we're meant to believe it's yeah this like supernatural entity that he's introducing to the pantheon. Mm. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, I think the 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 way which seems most faithful to the text is to take it as like he talks about being visited by it and he talks about it in this very theological language as a daemon so mm. i think it, it makes sense to on, at take least him at his word yeah to think about it as some some entity like a like an angel or a personified mm. um divine creature um but it, yeah that that's one possible reading that yeah. it's that it's a psychological mechanism i suppose yeah i think another possible reading well, a way into another possible reading would be to think about what Socrates has to say generally about gods, about enthusiasm in the literal sense, about having a god within you. Um, and again, there are lots of things that could be said about this, but one place to start is something we've already mentioned. Um, when he's first told about the Delphic Oracle's answer, Socrates is the wisest, or no one is wiser than Socrates, What's his response? Disbelief. That can't be right. I know I'm not wise. Mm. In other words, the beginning of his quest is precisely a disbelief in what's supposed to be a divine oracle. At the very least, then, he's sceptical. Now, I think that already says volumes. Um, Socrates does not take an oracle to be an oracle, at least until he's actually investigated its claims for himself. Now, if we go on from that, to the demon. Okay, some obvious questions. He hears this voice. Now surely a Socratic question about that would be, all right, what am I to make of this? What is this voice? Is it a god? Is it one of the pantheon? Is it something else? And how might I know that? And interestingly, those questions are never thematically um, and explicitly addressed regarding the demon. It is fascinating because, again, this is going outside the the apology, but elsewhere uh, he criticises poets mm. precisely because they are inspired. Um, you think of the ion. Yes. yes, and it comes up in the Republic too. They're inspired by these external spirits, mm. forces, demons, um, the muses, yep. and... Um, and therefore, they can't take credit for what it is they do. They're not acting rationally when, you know, when Ion um, recites Homer, he can't take credit for the performance because it's something outside himself. Uh, but, and Socrates distinguishes between that and philosophy. You know, exactly, that, yes. So how do we square that with what, with what you've just said? I mean, and not, well, not with what you've just said, but what you've... Um, described as happening in this in this um, work you know that he himself is is told or perhaps that's the difference but he himself is inspired in some way by a divine force why then does that not um, you know mean that he is in the same category as the poets what, what's the difference between this, these divine forces well again a possible difference would be, Socrates is actually aware that when we talk about being inspired, enthused, mm. really we don't know what's happening. Yeah. Maybe, yes, there is 
a god, whatever a god may be, or a demon mm. who is inspiring me, but we don't know that. How yeah. could we know that? Yeah. Um, if I can again, it's unavoidable to do this. Yes, mm. we do have to refer to texts other than the Apology. Yeah. Again, in the Phaedrus, this is one of the rare occasions when Socrates himself talks of being inspired and not just by the demon on this occasion. Um, his first speech about love, he says in, in the lead up to it, I can feel myself being inspired in effect. Now, later on he actually says that that speech that he gave was impious mm. um, for various reasons. And then later on in that same conversation, he says, now surely a God, precisely because he's a God, would never inspire or do anything bad. That's not possible because gods are good. That's the implication. Mm. And we have to ask, so what does that then say about this initial inspiration, supposedly yeah. divine? At the very least, it makes it ambiguous. Yes. Um, I think, my strong suspicion is that's what Plato wants us to take out of this. Right. Um, we should actually regard Socrates himself as sceptical regarding his demon. Okay. Not necessarily atheist, but sceptical. Mm. I mean, if I can continue on that same thread, coming back down to the Apology. At the beginning, when he's talking about his career of questioning, he says it was partly in obedience to the Oracle, which of course is not actually true. <laughs> it was in disbelief of the Oracle, but fine. Yeah. But also it was um, connected in some way with his demon. Later on, after sentence has been pronounced, and he knows that, as it were, all hope is lost, he talks about the philosophic life, about the happiness it brings, and how he would keep on doing it, and he doesn't make any mention at all of gods or demons or mm. anything there. And I think, again, we can read that as where Socrates laying certain cards on the table at that point. This yeah. is the real me now, the philosopher, the questioner. Yeah. Now, the real me is interesting because, and I want to tie that in with this issue of irony, is the, the text begins with Socrates um, very artfully suggesting that he is artless yes. when it comes to mm -hmm. his defence, that he doesn't really know how courts operate, he's not um, experienced in this, um, he's been accused of being an arch deceiver but this couldn't possibly be the case because uh, he just speaks the truth, what's on his mind, he doesn't frame it in, in honeyed language, um, in adornment and, uh, and so he distinguishes then between his approach and that of the sophists, uh, who are those who, who basically teach people how to convince others of a position, who are paid to convince, uh, to teach others how to convince others of a position irrespective of its truth. And um, the irony, of course, is that the his defence is very artful. It is very structured. Uh, it does appeal to emotion as well as reason. Even when he says that it's he's just focused on truth. So just perhaps finally if we could reflect on that. Yeah, I mean that is that, that's a fascinating question and, and the, the, the um, fragment, the passage you describe is just one instance mm. of a problem which is all throughout the whole dialogues. So yeah. He's, um, he, the way he plays with irony and so it's very interesting to, be, to, to think about what does that persistent irony why, why was Socrates like that? What was he trying to achieve by it? One, one answer, which I don't think is the entire answer, but has some, some explanatory power, is that Socrates was doing that uh, in a way to amplify 
the lack of expertise of his interlocutor. Right. So he was saying, uh, I don't claim to have the expertise that you have, and then he outperforms them yes. at their own game. And so it's a way of say, it's a way of showing that if someone like me who doesn't have this expertise is able to do what you even better than what you do, uh, that shows that you don't have the expertise that you claim to. So then that's just a way of really powerfully raising the question, where does this expertise come from or where should it come from? Um, and he, he often does that when he's, uh, he often takes that stance when he's uh, having a discussion with someone who's in a, a great um, position of influence or power. Um, but th there's a lot more that can be said about yeah. the, the There is always a lot more, but we'll finish yeah. there. Thank you both.